Well, good morning and uh, welcome again to you all. I think that's the third welcome you've had. So if you're not feeling welcome yet, um, there's not much more we can do about that. Um, if, if you don't know me, my name's uh, Trevor. Uh, I'm, I'm one of the elders here, um, one of the long timers. Um, and it's been, it's been a while since I've done this, so um, a lot of you uh, have no idea what you're in for. Um, so that's exciting. And um, it also makes me a little bit nervous. And uh, some of you may have heard this story before. The nervousness is at its most intense at this very beginning, because years ago when we still lived in the UK and we were between uh, pastors at our church, and I was preaching, and I had a really well-prepared sermon. And as I stepped up to the, to the lectern, I felt utterly convicted that it was the wrong sermon and that God had laid something completely different on my heart. And rather melodramatically, I took my notes and I tore them up in front of the congregation and then preached from the heart. I came to regret that later because at the end of the sermon, there was a verse that was in my notes that I really wanted that didn't look quite as uh, compelling as I groveled about looking for it. Um, I can't do that because I'm on an iPad and that would just be too wasteful. Um, But it's it's a nerve-wracking time for anyone who uh, seeks to open the word of God to his people and to those who don't know him because uh, we stand here in faith believing that God has given us something to say to you um, as his people. And uh, it is our prayer that um, God will pluck away anything that uh, has come from me and will reach each of our hearts and our minds. Um, And hopefully there'll be something left of of my sermon. Um, Okay, perhaps an unusual start. In, um, so if, if you looked at the newsletter, you'd have seen uh, that the title of the sermon uh, is this, and some of you will recognize that uh, album cover. But um, before we get to there, just a, um, something else which uh, struck me in my preparation. In season one of Breaking Bad, I'm... I'm not endorsing it, but if you've, if you've seen it, it's a cultural reference, you'll understand. In season one of Breaking Bad, Walter White, uh, he takes a gift to his uber-successful one-time science partner at the latter's birthday party. And these are all wealthy people, and, and Walter and his wife are struggling financially. And he's embarrassed at the gift he's bought, how small it is. Um, He sees piles of ostentatious gifts, beautifully wrapped, piled up. And to make it even worse, his friend Elliot decides to open the presents in front of everyone. The the awkwardness is palpable because what Walt has bought for his uh, long-time friend is a packet of instant noodles. It's a tense moment. But to Eliot, his friend, the gift is perfect. He opens it and he says, I love it. He loves it because of the memories 
that it brought back of their postgraduate days. And he loves it because of the effort and the thought that has gone into it. And Walt says to him, what do you get the man who has everything? And that almost brings me to today's sermon. There's a two, there, there are two things, the saying goes, there are two things that you don't want to see being made. Anybody know what those two things are? Sausages is one, and the other is? Laws. Yeah. If you're a West Wing fan, you'll remember Leo McGarry saying this at one point. We don't want to see how sausages are made. We don't want to see how laws are made. I used to work at a school in the UK for boys with behavioural problems, and there was a, an abattoir nearby, and our science teacher, who also had a little small holding, every year he would take the kids, a group of the kids, on a, as a, on a science lesson to the abattoir. And they would see from when the animals arrived to when they exited the far end in their constituent parts. And the, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't a positive highlight in many of these kids' lives because it was fairly gruesome. And to, to, to round it off, the, the abattoir staff would take them up to the staff canteen and give them a cup of tea and a pork pie. It wasn't subtle, but it did at least show that these kids could see the link between the, the livestock in the fields and the food on their plates. Um, you don't want to see how sausages are made. And I want to add a third thing to that, which is my sermon preparation. Um, <laughs> you really don't want to see that being made. Uh, I'm really pleased that uh, Ali, my wife, isn't in here listening because... Uh, she is more nervous than me. She hates my sermon preparation. I normally keep it secret. Um, hope she doesn't look at the newsletter. Uh, Preston actually let it out the bag last week, but I just had one week where I had to um, fend off her inquiries rather than three or four. But you see, I had, I had an idea for this sermon series that takes, me back to this, takes us back to this picture on the screen. I thought, wouldn't it be great if I took, if I did a, you know, we've got... We don't know when we're going to get a pastor. I could do a sermon series where each week I look at one of the songs on Bob Dylan's uh, album, Slow Train Coming, and, and bring out the biblical truths from that album. Um, the, I thought it was a nice idea. You know, they're great songs. And um, you might be thinking... Well, why? Well, here's my justification. Um, when we first came here, about 16 years and two weeks ago, maybe three weeks, um, our daughters, who were little girls at the time, they came running out of Sunday school at the end of the service, and they said, we love it here. And uh, that's a fairly common reaction for kids coming out of our Sunday school over, over years and years. And that, if you're a parent, you'll understand that was a big factor in deciding us that ICP was going to be our church home here in the Czech Republic. At that time, we didn't know how long we were going to stay. But another factor, I like to think, is listening, hearing the then-pastor, John Waldrop, describe Bob Dylan as his favourite theologian. And it's not as if John Waldrop was a slouch when it came to reading and theology. He would probably read for about 20 to 30 hours in preparation for each 
of his sermons. So for him to say Bob Dylan was his favourite theologian, possibly slightly tongue-in-cheek, was good enough for me. Um, So I had this idea. Great. Then I looked at the album. There's nine songs. It's a little bit... A few too many sermons, probably, for you long-suffering people. And some of them, if you know the album, you'd struggle to get enough meat from the song, even for a small sausage. And if you know the album, Man Gave Names to All the Animals, that would be a short sermon. So I was in the doldrums for a little bit, because I'd had this idea for a while. And then, last week... uh, Preston, and I'm glad he's not here to, give me, to hear me give him credit, um, Preston used a verse which really struck me. It was this verse here from Proverbs, obviously, because that's where he's preaching from. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. You won't be surprised to learn that that reminded me of a Bob Dylan song um, from a different album, from the album Saved. And the song concerned uh, was, What Can I Do For You? And I've been thinking about that song ever since. It's a side note. If you, uh, if you want to witness the sheer joy of salvation, you can listen to the album Saved and enjoy that. Okay, so this song, anybody know it? What can I do for you? On the album Saved, there's a huge cultural and musical hole in your lives. Go home, go to YouTube, go on Spotify, fill that gap in your lives especially if you track down the 1980s concert, 1980 concert footage from Toronto, which I've just discovered in this last week. The joy, the exuberance of somebody who has found salvation in our God. But it has this question, what can I do for you? He's singing it to God. What can I do for you? And it takes us back to good old Walter White. What do you get the man who has everything? Dylan says... You've given everything to me. You've given everything to me. What can I do for you? What can you do for almighty, creator, holy God? What can I do? Well, with the aid of John Wardrop's favourite theologian, I want to try to unpick this a little bit. And... Why this song? Well, it's not just gospel music in the the genre, but it's gospel music, the good news. It's the good news all wrapped up in five minutes and 53 seconds. And why is that important? Why, as Christians, should we bother with the good news? I think sometimes in in churches, uh, maybe in our personal lives, we, we have a slightly divided view of our faith. You know, we have the gospel, we preach the gospel, we evangelise, we have evangelistic meetings. I grew up in a, 
uh, a church where every Sunday evening we had a gospel service, almost always preaching to the converted. But the idea is that the gospel is something you preach to those who don't yet know Jesus as their saviour. And then we have other ministries. We have Bible study and discipleship and teaching, which apply to us once we're believers. It's, uh, it's as if sometimes we look at preaching the gospel almost as uh, Christianity 101. We've done that, uh, and now we're moving on. And of course, it is important that we move on. The Bible's very clear that we should look for spiritual food that is not just milk, that we should grow as believers. We should devour God's word and approach and understand the more difficult, the more complicated subjects. But there's a danger in abandoning the simplicity and the truth of the gospel. There are multiple references in the New Testament. Paul especially um, talks in a number of places about how important it is not to forget the true gospel that he preached or which the church he's writing to heard. Because if we, if we forget it, we become seduced to a false, into a false gospel. If we forget those foundations of our faith, we can so easily be led astray by a gospel which isn't rooted in scripture. And so I just want to revisit the gospel, if you like, and just using this, this song that I really enjoy as a, as a prop, as a coat hanger to hang our examination of the gospel on because we need to remind ourselves of the good news, the gospel. And as I said, the song starts with some good news. You have given everything to me. It goes on to say, you pulled me out of bondage. You pulled me out of bondage. You know, um, freedom is it's a touchstone kind of a word, isn't it? Freedom uh, resonates with us. Justice is another thing which resonates with us, I believe, because God is just. It communicates with that broken but still made in his image part of us. Justice resonates and freedom resonates. We don't like to see people who are not free. Some of the greatest, most moving speeches we might have heard are to do with Freedom, was it Martin Luther King Jr. who said, free at last, free at last, thank God, we're f- God Almighty, we're free at last. Freedom is so central to how we view our world. Galatians 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Freedom that Christ has set us free. Sounds a bit like a a tautology, but he hasn't set us free just to go and get ourselves into all sorts of bother. He set us free to be free for the freedom that comes from knowing him. In Western society, we probably don't experience 
anything close to slavery. We have freedoms. And uh, we know through the, the brilliant work that the, um, the anti-human trafficking uh, group here at church has done and across the world, we know that human trafficking exists. We know that slavery is probably as prevalent now as it ever has been, if not more so. But we often don't consciously see the effects of slavery, and few of us have probably lived in slavery or lived in bondage. And, uh, you know, we don't, we like to think of ourselves as free. We like to think of ourselves as having autonomy. Um, when Ali was little and they used to occasionally go to a restaurant, she used to get kicked under the table by her mother because she would refer to the waiting staff as servants. And uh, her mum would hope that the the waiting staff hadn't heard them being called servants because we don't really like that word anymore. We don't like to be servile. We don't like to be anybody's slave. And of course, you know, this is different from the worlds in which the Old and the New Testaments were written where slavery wasn't just common, but it was also endorsed by civilised societies. It was permitted. And... If we say to our non-Christian friends, you're in slavery to sin, you're in bondage, they're going to think we're slightly mad because they don't feel like they're in bondage to anything. They don't feel like they're slaves. They feel like they're free. So what is this bondage? When we think of slavery in the Bible, I guess the first thing that comes to many of our minds, first thing that came to my mind, was the children of Israel in Egypt. And you, you probably know the story. The, um, Joseph brought his family to Egypt so they could survive the famine. Um, by God's providence, he had put him there in a position where he could bring them. And eventually, over the years, the Israelites were put into slavery by the Pharaoh because he feared their number and he feared that they would overrun the, the, the uh, Egyptian kingdom. Um, the passage we're about to read actually talks about slavery at that time, but from the perspective of the Egyptians themselves. In uh, Genesis 47, we read this. When that year was over, they, that's the Egyptians, came to him, that's Joseph, and said, we cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes, we and our land as well? Buy us and our land in exchange for food. And we, with our land, will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die and that the land may not become so desolate. That's a striking phrase. There is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. In bondage, in slavery, it's total. You can't be a part-time slave. 
and to fully understand what God has done for us in the spiritual realm, we have to understand that we have come from a place of spiritual bondage and spiritual slavery. In his letter to the church in Rome, chapter 6, Paul says this, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Slaves to sin. This is the spiritual lesson. And remember, it's total. It encompasses everything. We're not part-time slaves. And as our favourite theologian puts it in a different song, I was born already ruined, stone cold dead as I stepped out of the womb. This is one of the starting places of the gospel, that when we come to God, it is from this place of being dead in our sins from the moment we're born. And if we don't get to the point of recognizing our need, how far off from God we are, we're not going to look for salvation. We're not going to seek him and find the salvation he offers. So, being pulled out of bondage is where we start on the journey of the good news told by the gospel. And we don't just come out exactly as we were. Again, what we find is, as Dylan puts it, you made me renewed inside. You pulled me out of bondage and you made me renewed inside. As 2 Corinthians tells us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. What God offers us in the gospel is the chance to be a new creation, born again. There's a phrase that's uh, it's both overused and undervalued, but it really is a new birth, because in our original birth we came out slaves to sin. But we are to be different. And we are different. In Colossians, to the church in Colossus, Paul writes this. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. So how do we get to this new place? How do we get to this newness of life? Well, if we carry on with the, the song, we find that Jesus has laid down his life for me. He laid down his life for you. And the truth is that that pivotal moment in 
history. The crucifixion. Jesus dying on the cross. It is both the beginning, a moment of both beginning and end. One of my favourite poets is T.S. Eliot. And I'm not always sure what he's saying. And I think if you find somebody who claims they are sure, they're probably lying or deluded. But there's a really striking extract from one of his poems where he says this, at the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point. There would be no dance, and there is only the dance. Now, I wish I knew what he meant by the dance, but everything else in that passage just speaks to me of this moment in history where it's as if the whole of creation paused and held its breath for three days. Because if Jesus had just died, and that was it, then, well, you know, Paul says we're to be pitied above all people. But at that still point, God was working. And he was working the greatest miracle of all time. Because when he rose again, as creation breathed again, new life and new hope were born. So the good news is that we move from darkness to light. We move from death to life. And we do it because Jesus died on the cross and he rose again. The next phrase, you have given all there is to give. In the same way, slavery is not partial. Our sin is not marginal. The gift of God is everything. You have given all there is to give. In Philippians chapter 2, very well-known passage, but we read this, talking about Jesus being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on the cross. You have given all there is to give. God did not hold back. He gave his most precious gift, which was his own son. Jesus gave his own life. He gave 
at that, that time where he gave communion with his Father so that we might be able to be in communion with him for all eternity. And the result of this, our next phrase, you have given me life to live. Again, the gospel tells us that uh, God gives us a new life. Not just for this world, he gives us a life which starts in this world and extends for eternity. And it offers us freedom. Freedom from that bondage, this new life. But it doesn't offer us a bed of roses. It doesn't offer us an easy life. The song goes on. I know all about poison. I know all about fiery darts. I don't care how rough the road is. Show me where it starts. Whatever pleases you, tell it to my heart. See, there's a response here to what God has done for us. Recognising that the road will be rough. There will be trials and there will be difficulties. But they are difficulties and trials which God will be with us through. I think one of the errors we've slipped into in the West is we preach an easy gospel. You know, come to Jesus, it's all going to be okay. It's going to be full of joy. It's not. It's a gospel of trials and difficulties. It's about a different kind of slavery and hardship. It's about a tough calling that demands discipline and sacrifice. And it demands a response from us and it demands that we give ourselves to God. Whatever pleases you, tell it to my heart. We're not on this rough road alone. We're not in this new life alone. God is with us. He's able to communicate to our hearts. He's able to, through the Holy Spirit living in us, he's able to speak to us, to comfort, to correct, to encourage There's a danger at times that we, we preach a mechanical gospel as well as an easy one, but a mechanical gospel where we, you know, you put the swab up your nose, you swirl it in the reagent, you drip it in the lateral flow test, and after 15 minutes, look, you've positive, you tested positive for Christianity. If you follow these steps, you'll find out if you're a Christian or not. It's not like that. The very first commandment of the Ten Commandments that God gives to the Israelites is really telling. You probably know it. And when Jesus was asked, you know, what do I need to do to be saved? Well, keep those first two commandments. And the first one is this, love the Lord your God 
with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's not mechanical. That's not following a set of steps. That's not carrying out a procedure. That's a command to love God. And it's a command to love God with my heart, my my soul, and all my strength. And it doesn't say in brackets on Sunday morning. Or during my daily quiet time. Or when I'm leading a Bible study. It's about love. Tell it to my heart, says Dylan. What do you want me to do? Tell it to my heart. How do we grow to love God? We learn all we can about him. The more we learn, the more we'll see how utterly deserving of our love he is. You know, in human relationships, so often, the more we know about something, someone, the harder it is to love them. Yeah? The more we know of their failures and their faults and their weaknesses and their shortcomings, the harder it can be to love and respect them. With God, the more we know about him, the more there is, the more reason there is, the more understanding there is that we should love him. I want to go back briefly to this idea of slavery because we started there. And uh, this freedom that we experience, this freedom from slavery to sin, is not just some hippie freedom lifestyle. In fact, part of the rough road is that the Bible teaches us the freedom we experience comes at a cost, which is that we become a different kind of slaves. In Romans 6, verse 17, we read this. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. We have come to obey from our hearts. It's a heart thing. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. This is where the gospel gets tough, isn't it? We go out and we say, be free from sin. Oh, if you could just become slaves to righteousness, if you don't mind. But if you think about it, wouldn't it be great if all I could do was to be righteous? If I was so enslaved to righteousness that when somebody treats me badly in the shop, all I can be is righteous and loving to them because of God living and working through me. If a a friend spurns me, if a colleague abuses me, whatever, if I can't help myself but respond with righteousness, that's a slavery I could deal with because that shows how God isn't distant but God is in me and he's working in me to change me to make me more like his son 
In Romans 8, we read this. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. It's a relationship which brings us into a child-parent relationship, and actually a son-parent relationship, because in the context of when this was written, you needed to be a son to get the good stuff. So it's not ignoring the women in the congregation. It's saying, you know, you need to be a son in that culture to get the good stuff. So that's why we're called to sonship in this context. So, briefly, because time is the enemy. What do we need to do? What is the gospel? What does it tell us? Well, first of all, the starting point is God is holy. We can't even begin to imagine the full extent of that. But God is holy. There is no sin in him. There never has been. And there never will be. Unlike us, we are sinful. And because of our sin, we were destined to be separated from him for eternity. However, Christ's sacrifice on the cross enables us to be freed from that destiny. By believing that Jesus died for our sins, by accepting him as our Lord, we receive that new life. We commit ourselves to following him. If we go back to the Egyptians at the beginning of this sermon, what did they say? They said, there's nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. We should give everything. It's not a tick box gospel. As the song says, I don't care how rough the road is, show me where it starts. God doesn't want to seduce us into a a soft gospel and then go, ah, I forgot to mention. Gets a bit difficult after week four. He's open about it. It's tough. It's sacrificial. And as we close, when I think about the three, three questions that occur in this song. What can I do for you? That's the title of the song. What can I do for you? What can I give to you? How can I live for you? What can you give to the almighty creator God. You know, poor old Walt White, what do you give the man that's got everything? What can you give to almighty God? What could you possibly have that he wants? I was going to say he doesn't want your money. I mean, he wants some of it. (laughs) But you can't buy him with it. If you've got no money, he doesn't turn you away. He doesn't want your good looks, thank goodness. What can you give him? What can you give to the almighty creator God? Well, what you can give is the one thing that nobody else can give. Because you are in possession of that one thing. 
And that's you. The thing that you can give to Almighty God is yourself. What does it say in Deuteronomy? Love the Lord with all your, your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. If we want to paraphrase it, John Newton, what did he say? This demands my soul, my life, my all. I was even tempted, and those of you who know me will be surprised at this, I was even tempted to quote a Christmas carol at this point. But I, I couldn't quite cross that bridge. But um, you know the one, what can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a, a wise, man, wise man, I would do my part. But what I can, I give. I give my heart. Brackets plus my soul, plus my all. There's nothing but our bodies and our land. But the great news is, that's all God wants. So what he wants is the one thing that we can give him. It's perfect. So easy to get drawn away from this gospel, from this good news. Shiny things distract us. According to Ali, anyway, shiny things distract me. Um, wealth distracts us. Careers distract us. Children, houses, hobbies, all sorts of things in themselves can be really good, but they can distract us, take away our energy our, and our attention. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your strength. What can you give to almighty creator God? Give him yourself. It's the greatest gift you can give him. And it's what he wants. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, there's nothing we can do to earn or deserve your love because nothing we have is worthy. I thank you that uh, you, you see us as we truly are and you still love us. You have seen the worst we have done and the worst that we will do and you love us. You love us so much that you, you gave your only son that he would experience being made fully man, that he would experience separation from you and death on a cross, just so that we might know an eternity with you, in fellowship with you. We thank you that that love reaches out to us and that the simple answer to the question, what can we do for you, is just to give you our all give you ourselves, our talents, our minds, our bodies, our time, and use them for your work. 
Father, I pray that uh, you will take your words and let them work in our hearts and minds in the hours and days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.